This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A study from the Urban Indian Health Institute found Utah ranks eighth in the nation for the number of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Utah legislators recently formed a task force to address why Utah's numbers are so high. <clears throat> the bill is only part of an overall uh, work being done to address this issue. Representative Angela Romero told the Utah State Legislature, Utah uh, U.S. Department of Justice found that American Indian women face murder rates that are more than 10 times the national average. And Representative Romero sponsored House Bill 116, which created that task force to research the causes of the high rate of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls uh, in Utah. Uh, we're going to talk about this with Representative Romero and with Yolanda Francisco Nez, who is with Restoring Ancestral Winds. Uh, right now, we bring in UPR reporter uh, Tamson Malloy. Tamson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate uh, your great work here. Um, so uh, let's hear the story, okay? And then uh, I want to ask you a, a few questions about it. And then we'll right. then we'll bring in uh, Representative Romero and Yolanda Francisco Nez. So here's the Tamson's story from a few weeks ago. The U.S. Department of Justice found that American Indian women face murder rates that are more than ten times the national average. That's Representative Angela Romero speaking to the Utah House of Representatives. Romero sponsored House Bill 116, creating a task force to research the causes of the high rate of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in Utah. Romero says there is disagreement among indigenous communities and law enforcement about the accuracy of the data from the Urban Indian Health Institute. She says one of the goals of the task force is to fill in gaps in the data and in how information is collected. When we think about marginalized communities, many times they're invisible, many times they're forgotten. And so I wanted to bring that face to the forefront. The passage of House Bill 116 is a significant step to confronting this problem, but it is only a part of the work being done by groups and individuals on this issue. Michelle Brown is the chair for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Utah a group working under the umbrella of PANDOS, a nonprofit activism organization. She describes work that supports families and educates the public about the missing and murdered. When people see a name, they hear a name, it's a person. It is able to, to recognize that that person is missing or is murdered. It's not just like this abstract idea of like, oh, someone's gone missing. It's like, no, this person with this specific name has been missing or has been murdered. We miss this person. We want to know where they are or we are mourning still. One example of the work MMIW Utah does, Brown says, is when they paid for the gas for one family driving to and from court. So being able to dictate as a group of like, okay, this is a way that we think we can help. And it's something that lets those families know that we're not only physically here for you, but, you know, we want to help you in other ways if possible, if we can lessen the burden. Another tool MMIW Utah has is a list of eight things non-Indigenous allies can say instead of remaining silent. The list includes things like understanding historical context and holding politicians accountable. Brown says the list revolves around questions allies can ask themselves that will help center and amplify Indigenous voices. In March, Restoring Ancestral Winds, or RAW, held a rally at the Utah State Capitol Building. The event coincided with the Utah State Legislature passing House Bill 116 and included a jingle dress dance for healing. The jingle dress dancers that performed at the Utah State Capitol Rotunda in March really played a significant role in how people heal. Yolanda Francisco Nez is the executive director for RAW, a nonprofit advocacy group working to end various forms of violence. How they find healing through that is often by those cultural practices that are occurring that among our tribes who still speak their language, still 
conduct um, spiritual activities that help individuals to heal. May 5th is established as a National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls. This year, Ra will host a virtual day of healing. So how Restoring Ancestral Winds views this entire crisis is we start from the very beginning and look at all the disruptions that happen. Moroni Benali is the coordinator of advocacy and public policy at RAW. And we look at the institutional and political indifference towards the native to indigenous communities right now, the chronic underfunding, and how that all impacts the social uh, relationships that individuals have with each other, how it affects their development, and then looking at how those factors elevate the risk of either being murdered or going missing. And there's multiple avenues that that can happen. And so the emphasis on healing is about the entire process as opposed to just talking about the endpoint. The webinar will feature multiple speakers and experts on this subject. We have individuals who are going to be speaking primarily as researchers and people who are have done this work for a very long time. And I think that it'll be great to have them share with the community different ways that we have found uh, healing. Listeners interested in joining the webinar can register on the Restoring Ancestral Winds website. The webinar will be on Tuesday, May 5th at 6 p.m. A list of additional resources on this subject can be found at upr.org. For Utah Public Radio, I'm Tamson Malloy. We now bring in uh, Tamson Malloy. Uh, so uh, first question, Tamson, uh, you can kind of stand in, I guess, for uh, maybe for the average listener. Go, go back and, and uh, think about when you didn't know uh, as much about this subject. Of course, you do a deep dive when you do a story like this. Um, what, what things were you aware of and what things do you think the top of mind that you learned during this story? Uh, well, it's hard to remember sure when I first learned about this. Um, so it's definitely not something I always knew about, but it's been in my mind long enough that um, it's hard to remember exactly what I didn't know. But I, I think the probably the number one thing is uh, the the scope and the, and not only the scope and the numbers, but also um, not fully recognizing how it's part of a long history. It's not just something new. It's been happening for generations, for hundreds of years since colonization. And so I think that's kind of the thing I didn't know. And the thing that um, comes to mind is something that's really important for the average listener to understand. Yeah, the historical context, right? We we sometimes don't think about exactly. Uh, the numbers themselves are are just shocking, appalling, right? Uh, American Indian women right. face murder rates more than 10 times the national average. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely appalling, and it's kind of hard to grapple with, I think, especially because, um, especially in a place like Utah, where on average our population is, is mostly just white people, and so it's easy for people to think about or to forget that there are other groups here who are experiencing different kinds of traumas than them. Um, and, and so when you realize that you kind of look at the data and you just are stunned. And, um, I'm looking at the report from the urban Indian health Institute right now. And, um, there's just this big glaring number that murder is the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaska native women. And that that's, an extraordinarily high ranking for that kind of that cause of death. So it it is an alarming thing that's happening right now. And then uh, other statistics, and we'll get into these to go along. But uh, American Indian women, Alaska Native women, um, experience uh, violence and sexual violence. Uh, it seems like at a, a quite a bit higher rate. Yeah, and and I I think that that's all within the context of what. Um, this report says and, and part of what the task force will need to address and and there's also again part of that historical context um, where a new people invades a land that already has existing people and um, does things to take over and cause harm and it's all part of that bigger picture. What, uh, of course, uh, I know, happen to know, uh, in the media you do a lot of research, you talk to a lot of people, you got five minutes to do a story. Uh, what, what do you wish you had space to, what do you wish you had space to include? Is there anything you regretfully left out of this story because you only had five minutes? 
Yeah, um, I think one of the things I wish I had been able to include is more of the everyday things and more of the um, artistic things. And and I I want to I like to think about the artistic things because there's a lot of art in various forms that go along with coping with this kind of trauma as well as just um, helping the community at large be aware of it. And I think it's it's great because, you know, it's art, and so there's all this creativity that goes into it. But it's also, um, I think it kind of defies the, the stereotype we have about Indigenous people living within cities or within the state in general, um, because it is so contrary to what you see in the history books where we learn about indigenous people because it's it's modern, it's new, it's react reflective and reactive to what's going on now. And so I I I I contemplated going towards that direction as I was doing the story but ended up just going more of like in case just trying to let people know what is going on from a basic standpoint and maybe focus on the art later. Yeah, that would be an interesting uh, follow-up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, well, Tamsin, uh, you're going to stay with us, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it's kind of hard on the phone but uh, it, to raise your hand, but but uh, you'll have to do it verbally. I'd love to have you ask questions as they occur to you as we go along as well. So okay. just jump in, and if questions occur to you or, or you want to get a comment in. Um, good. All right, I appreciate that uh, story. You can find that at our website, upr.org, Tamsin's uh, story. We bring now uh, in... Uh, Representative Angela Romero, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, uh, coming back on the program. Uh, we also bring in Yolanda Francisco-Nez, who's with uh, the group Restoring Ancestral Winds. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you this morning, Tom. Good, good to be with you. And, of course, Tamsin Malloy, our, our reporter, uh, stays with us. Uh, so, Representative Romero, um, as I mentioned with, with uh, the conversation with Tamsin there, uh, these numbers are just appalling. Uh, but I don't know whether this has seeped into the general consciousness. Do you think it's, I, I, I'm becoming more aware of the, this, uh, you know, the, the movement to, to, to make people more aware. So I guess it's, it's working a little bit. Uh, but there's a lot of things competing for our attention, especially these days. Do you think this is seeping in? I hope so. That That is my hope. I, just what was, um, what's happened over the weekend, even here in Utah, I don't want people to lose sight of historical trauma on communities of color, in particular um, the topic we're talking about, Native American women. And for so long, many of us have been advocating for these um, policy issues. Um, prior to being elected, I, um, I've always been a community organizer and always been a public servant. And um, Yolanda Francisco Nez reached out to me because she wanted me to run the resolution um, to make murder to missing Indigenous women and two-spirited people um, a, a, not only a national holiday, but a, a Utah Awareness Day. And so we were able to do that. And we knew by being able to push that through, we'd be able to get the task force the following session. Uh, so tell me a bit about this uh, task force. Ha House Bill uh, 116 creates a task force. What's the task force going to do? So we are going to, um, first of all, um, we finally got appointed, so myself and Senator Hinkins will co-chair the task force, which shows commitment from the state of Utah. You have a Democrat and a Republican co-chairing a committee, and um, they took our recommendations on who should serve on the committee, because what frustrates me more than anything is when we talk about communities, but we don't have those communities at the table and helping lead those discussions and really us kind of following and so what we're going to do, what we're kind of already starting to do is explore um, why are the numbers so high, where, where are the gaps, and how do we move forward? So just because we formed a task force doesn't mean these conversations are going to end as long as I'm elected and hopefully after I'm, I'm gone from the legislature, we're still having these conversations because this is historical trauma we're talking about. This is not going to be solved in a year with a task force. This is going to have to do, we're all going to have to do some deep diving here and, and, and look at ourselves and look at our privileges and, and look at how we've benefited from the, the trauma of others. You made uh, reference to the, the, the demonstration, the protests going on um, after the death of uh, George Floyd, um, and mm -hmm. uh, a reference to uh, historic trauma. Um, 
you, I wonder if you talk a little bit more about that. So the, there's historic trauma with regard to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls as well. Yeah, it's it's about um, people who are invisible to a lot of people or people who have been silenced. And so many people don't know. Um, I'm Latina, but I'm also Native American. My dad's Native American. My dad um, grew up on a reservation in Montana, Fort Peck. And so just to know the history of my family off my dad's side and knowing that my grandma had to go to boarding school to be Americanized. And so when you look at the trauma and the pain inflicted on communities, whether it be Native Americans who were um, taken, their land was taken away and we were put on reservations, or whether you look at Black Americans who didn't come to the United States on their own. They, they were seen as property or whether you, you look at Asian Americans who were put in internment camps because of who they were. And so when you look at this trauma and you look at this trauma that many have experienced, it kind of um, relates to some of the things that many of us have today and some of the privileges we have today. Like it wasn't that long ago when certain communities weren't allowed to go to um, college, weren't allowed to drink out of the same water fountain. So when we think about those those historical traumas, that's kind of what leads up to who we are today. And, you know, I know um, Yolanda can go even deeper than I can on, on this issue. I've worked with her throughout the years in the community organizing to bring voices to um, Native American concerns and policy issues. Well, let's turn to uh, Yolanda. This is uh, Yolanda Francisco Nez with Restoring Ancestral Winds. Uh, before we jump into this, uh, tell us what Restoring Ancestral Winds is. Sure. Restoring Ancestral Winds is one of 19 tribal coalitions across the country working with Native American communities to address sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, and teen dating violence. We moved here to Salt Lake City in, a, in let's see, it would have been 2017, uh, and we are located actually in Sandy, Utah, we have three staff. We have our policy coordinator as well as our training uh, training specialist who conducts training among professionals um, who are working with Native communities or victim advocates within Native communities across the state. I'd, I'd be interested to get your take, uh, Yolanda Francisco Nez, on on uh, historic trauma. This this idea that's and and connected to these uh, protests that are going on. Well, you know, when we talk about history and we look at the fact that in America you had indigenous people who were already present and living in this country long before the colonizers arrived. And think about what kind of, what did this country look like before that and what did this country look like after that? When we're talking about historical trauma, you know, I often have people coming up to me saying things like, why are the Navajo people faced with one of the three top highest hotspots in the country for COVID-19, okay? When that happens, you know, it's like I feel like a, a history professor talking about all of history and how America has treated our indigenous populations. Uh, whether we look at its the very beginning, we can actually find studies. Um, there's a great book called The Beginning and End of Rape by Sarah Deer. She talks about this historical context, um, and she looks at the fact that when there's no evidence that exists that sexual assault was present among our indigenous communities before settler arrival. However, she takes, she takes, she picks apart piece by piece in these institutions that Euro-Americans uh, created before, uh, upon their arrival, beginning back as far as, you know, that time period when the, our indigenous communities were helping those settlers come into this country um, and actually save their lives. Uh, and what did we get in return for that? We got, you know, the, the issues and problems are numerous. And when we have institutions like, I'm going to give you an example of, of my grandfather, who 
when he was a little boy on the Navajo reservation, he was taken from, him and his brother were taken from their parents to go to school in a, a boarding school that was very far away from where their home was. And when he arrived, he was only, he was only, he called it baby school. It was before kindergarten. He, when he arrived there, all the kids were lined up and the teacher opened a, a book and went down the list of names and gave them uh, English names. And after he was given a name, all the boys were told to sit in a chair and their heads were shaved um, and their long hair was gone. And that long hair has incredible significance to who we are as individuals. And I won't go into that, but then my my grandfather spoke Navajo fluently and that was his only language. When they got to school, they only could speak English, and they were severely punished when they were unable, whenever they uh, spoke Navajo. And yet you have a history with my grandfather riding on horseback with a group of his friends to San Diego to go and fight in the, in the uh, Marines and become a Navajo co-talker. And goes to fight America's war and is able to help win World War II through the Navajo language, returns back to the Navajo Nation and rarely, rarely speaks a word of English upon his return. As his own, I feel like it was his, his, his way of saying making a statement to his family that I'm going back to who I started out when I was a kid, and that was to be a Navajo man and practicing the Navajo uh, traditions and culture. Mm. And he goes on to continue his life in a, on the Navajo Nation, and we, I was raised in a very English, you know, a family that spoke English first. And I guess what I'm illustrating here is that you have so many stories across the United States among Indigenous people who can tell you and share with you their history and how they have been impacted by the United States government laws um, and regulations, and, and it's playing itself out as we look at the Navajo Nation and look at what's happening with Black Lives Matter and see that if you study a bit more and take a deeper look at why we have our communities of color who continually, continually try to bring to the forefront the problems that they are facing, have faced, continue to face, and you'll, I really, I believe that you begin to see how the injustice of it all. Mm. Um, I want to, let's uh, take a break and we'll come back. Uh, and of course, much more to talk about here. We're talking about uh, missing and murdered uh, indigenous women and girls. There's a task force that has been set up in Utah. Uh, Utah ranks, uh, Urban Indian Health Institute found that Utah ranks eighth in the nation for the number of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Uh, U.S. Department of Justice uh, has found American Indian women face murder rates that are 10 times the national average. Those are just a couple of uh, the very startling statistics. And, of course, as you heard in uh, Tamsin Malloy's story, uh, one, of, one of the people she reached uh, said that each of these statistics ha- has a name and a face to it, right? We're talking about people. Um, we're talking with Representative Angela Romero with Yolanda Francisco-Nez with Restoring Ancestral Winds and UPR Report Tamsin Malloy is with us as well. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and PBS Utah and the Natural History Museum of Utah. Explore the American West with Prehistoric Road Trip, hosted by Emily Grassley. Join an interactive online preview, followed by a panel discussion with paleontologists across the state. Information at pbsutah.org events. 
The last few years in Utah and surrounding areas, many orchards and home gardens experienced a bacterial outbreak of fire blight. Fire blight is a disease affecting apples, pears, crab apples, flowering pears, hawthorns, and a few other species. The damage it causes appears as if the branches and twigs have been burned with fire and the leaves turn a telltale black or rusty brown. Since the disease can overwinter in infected trees, using an antibiotic or copper-based fungicide during bloom season can help prevent new infections this year. Use every five to seven days or after each rainstorm during bloom period. Good pruning practices will all help keep your trees healthy and free from infection. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Thanks for uh, being with us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This program is also part of the UPR's Project Resilience. Uh, it's made possible support by the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities and the Family Place in Logan. Appreciate all of the great sponsors here. Um, we are talking about the, uh, the appalling uh, murder rates and uh, violence rates perpetrated against uh, um, indigenous women and girls. And there's a new task force has been created, House Bill 116, created a special task force to research the causes of high rate of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Utah. We're talking with the sponsor of that bill, Representative uh, Angela Romero. We're talking with Yolanda Francisco-Nez with Restoring Ancestral Winds and with uh, UPR reporter uh, Tamson Malloy. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. So, Angela Romero, I want to uh, just cite a, a, a couple more statistics here. This is from the National Congress of American Indians, a policy research center from 2018. I want to do the comparative statistics, kind of put this in context. American Indian and Alaska Native women are 1.7 times more likely than white women to have experienced violence in the past year. Native women also face murder rates more than 10 times the national average in some counties. American Indian and Alaska Native women are, were almost two times as likely to have experienced rape as non-Hispanic white women. And the murder rate of Alaska, American Indian and Alaska Native women is almost three times that of non-Hispanic uh, white women. Um, do we, uh, Angela Romero, uh, do, do we have any idea why? We talk about historical context, and that's uh, a reason, but uh, in current times, do we, do we have a handle on this, or it's going to take task force to... to find some more reasons. Again, the, the task force is going to um, look at this and, and identify where the gaps are, but it's also important to point out that um, in most of these cases, their perpetrator are non-Native men. And so I think a lot of times when we talk about communities of color, automatically people's, um, people shift and just assume it's, it's um, you know, a person of color on a person of color. And, and in this scenario, the majority of the perpetrators are not um Native men. And so it really goes back to that historical trauma and how we value people. And it was interesting when I was running the bill, people were like, why Native women? Why not all Native Americans? Or why not? Why do we have to categorize people? That was a, a question I got from my colleagues. And so um, Yolanda and Moroni were up there with me almost every day educating people and talking about why and, and about value and about um, voices that have been silenced and and um, so it was an eye opener for a lot of my colleagues. And again, with what's going around and going on in our world now, I think it's opening their eyes to more um, systemic racism and and these issues that are so embedded in the foundation of our country. It's in our social fabric. And so, um, Indigenous women, a lot of times, and Indigenous um, community members in general, um, I feel aren't aren't valued. People just say, "Oh, that that's happening somewhere else." Oh. All Indigenous people live on reservations. Not true. Um, if you look at um, Utah in particular, many of our Native communities live in urban settings. 
And so we really kind of have to open our eyes and go, wait, what, what have we, who have we been neglecting for so long here in our country? And why do people talk about equity? And talking about murdered and missing Indigenous women hits on all these chords. So it's not just only about murdered and missing Indigenous women. It's about us reflecting as a country and how we've treated people. And um, so we'll see where this goes. And I'm, I'm hopeful for the task force. And as I promised Yolanda and I promised Moroni and I, pr- I promised community members that I'm not going to give up on this issue. We may form a task force. We may get our data. But this is a time for us to implement. This is a time for us to um, make sure that we're, we're really looking at true equity, make sure that we're providing the resources that people need. If you look at our country, and, and Yolanda pointed out the Navajo Nations, well, how about access to running water? How about access to electricity? This is the United States of America, and we don't treat all our citizens the same. And I know we're talking about sovereign nations, but that's not an excuse for me. These were people who have always been here. These are my family. This is my ancestry. And and we treat people like they don't, they've not always been here. And so I think that. We kind of really have to look at how we talk about histories and how we talk about people if we're truly going to um, get at why Indigenous women are being murdered and why they're going missing and why maybe we don't value all women the same. Hmm. Um, what's her next? Uh, back to Yolanda francisco Nez with Restoring Ancestral Winds. Um, I noticed... Um, the, the group uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Utah, has put out a list, eight things to say instead of silence. And I, I'm guessing you're familiar with this list. Um, number one, understand the history. There's a, you know, a lot of other things on here. Share information, hold legislators accountable, show up, invite others. Uh, number eight, practice being uncomfortable, having uncomfortable conversations. And I think that's uh, something we talk about with, you know, the, the current conversation over the, the, these protests on on race, right? That we we sometimes don't want to get uncomfortable, and uh, this this the writers of this list are saying let's let's be uncomfortable, let's have these uncomfortable conversations. Right. Well, for years and years, we um, in my uh, previous career, I our profession, I. We spent a lot of time investing in the voices of those who are from communities of color and are underrepresented in our government institutions. And time and time again, immediately, immediately, it was common for us to go into a setting where we were getting into a dialogue and you had a number of uh, non-Indigenous people, non well, I'll just say it, white people who were at the table who really were trying to be understanding of the causes and that that people of color were facing. However, it was really clear for those of us who understand what it means to be in a setting where you're the you're the minority voice and talking in a in a group of white people and trying to help them um, understand their white privilege and what that means to society when we're creating laws and policies and institutions of government where we are mandating things that are really only relevant to the majority, meaning white people. And if we were to take time to listen to those communities of color that are impacted, however small in number, and think about how it feels to come into a place from from that perspective as opposed to living in this country your entire life knowing English and going to college and having all of the things that any many Americans enjoy. Think about where do communities of color come from? How What is their history like? And understand maybe what may be informing their context of equity. And honestly, I have also seen over time when we have these government institutions who, you know, during election time are really willing to make a lot of promises to communities of color. But when push comes to shove, time and time again, I'm talking about 
you know, not only indigenous communities, but the refugee community, the Hispanic community, the undocumented. Um, there, there are there are a number of ways that institutions continue to discriminate against these communities, and it may not be written as this, the way they define discrimination as a civil rights matter, but defining discrimination as as a very very uh, it may not be written into their local law or their local code, but the way that people of color feel when they're going into places like, whether it be the Capitol or City Hall, or is it a place where they feel like not only being heard is, is it's, be, it's one thing to be heard, but it's also a, quite another thing. If you look at any budget of city government, state government, you'll find where their priorities lie. And I'll bet you anything, nine times out of ten, it's not going to be among putting in an investment of public money into the issues and addressing the issues that are of deep concern to communities of color. Hmm. I want to uh, take what you just said uh, uh, and uh, go over to uh, Representative Romero. So you made reference to action, right? We can we can understand this. We can raise awareness, but there has to be action. Um, so Representative Romero, just what Yolanda Francisco Nez said, there's you know often there's not the budget for this. This it's not prioritized by governments. Uh, how do you move it up in priority, and and what action to take? Well, I, I think Senator Escamilla and Representative Hollins and other members of the Quad Caucus, which represents the ethnic and, and racial groups in the legislature. There's only six of us, but Senator Escamilla and I in particular have learned how to just create our own space. And um, a lot of times people want us to, to sit down or they want our advice and they want to lead. But what we start to do with our colleagues, and, and this is with our Republican and Democrat colleagues, because not just Republicans, we're, we let them know, like, you need to let us lead. You say you want equity, you say you want to hear our voices, well, let us be those voices that lead and you be our allies. That's really difficult for people to do. And when you look at administrations across the country and even here in Utah, people talk about equity. But then you look at who their top advisors are and the people that are really at the table, and they're not people of color. And so what we decided to do is, like, we have these titles. We were elected by our communities. I represent the most diverse district in the state of Utah in the House. And so Senator Escamilla and I decided we need to create our own spaces. And so when Yolanda approached me about forming um, first the Awareness Day and then the task force, I had to create that space and I had to educate my colleagues and I had to get them to get behind me and believe in me. Would I like to see more funding go this direction? Yes, but that's what the task force is for. The task force is a, a way in which to identify those gaps. And then how do we move forward and how do we turn it into action? But again, there are people that have been here before me. My mentor, the late Senator Pete Suazo and others, um, former Representative Dwayne Bardot, we're having the same conversations with our colleagues that they did. And that was over 20, 30 years ago. So hopefully the way our country is moving now and people are more aware, I don't want people to have a photo op or someone cry and say, I understand. I actually want to see it. You know, I want to hold all my colleagues accountable and say, well, let's see, let's see you do some action. It's easy to cry and hold hands with us as communities of color, but um, let's see you put your money where your mouth is. Hmm. Yeah, it makes me, it puts me in mind, we, we talked about earlier in the program, puts me in mind of what's going on currently, right? <laughs> the, that, um, you know, the, 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 these, these deaths of black men keep happening, and um, this one happened to touch an especially deep, deep chord, uh, but, but the, these demonstrations and protests keep happening, and this, uh, you know, this feeling of rage uh, keeps building. Because, uh, from the point of view of many people, not not enough is being done. The action is missing. Yeah, yeah because what happens is people, you know, we're seeing the protests, now we're seeing people, um, and I'm glad it's bringing people hope, and we're seeing people hold hands, and we're seeing police officers kneel here in Utah and across the country. But it's also about what happens after the protest. Okay, you're kneeling with us now, but what are you going to do to change systems? And, and that's what I ask. I call on all our, my colleagues here in the state of Utah. It's, a, it's easy to talk about police brutality and file a bill, but um, how are you going to change who you are? 
How are you going to make this world more equitable? And, you know, we have to look in the mirror, and it's not always what we want to see. And even amongst communities of color, everyone in this country, we have biases, we have stereotypes. It's how you, how you dismantle those. And, um, and so for me, um, I'm hoping that I've seen all these people say they love and they want to help out and they want to create change. Well, I want to see where they're at a year from now because black men keep getting killed. Men of color keep getting killed. Let's talk about Native American men being killed by law enforcement. So this is not just um, something that happens to black men. It happens to men of color. Hmm. And so let's look at criminal justice reform. So, again, these are all systematic. They're all systemic. And so what are we really going to do to change? It's easy to meet with civil rights groups and people and say, and, and you know, feel a little bit of guilt. But how are you going to turn that into action? And that's not, not only for murder and missing Indigenous women. That's not only about criminal justice reform or police brutality. That's about our everyday lives. How have we prospered off the backs of others? And when I talk about that, a lot of times people personalize it. And I'm like, this is not about you. You need to look at history. And so the, hopefully these conversations continue. And I have hope that maybe as we move forward, we really have some action and some change. And I really have hope and, and the generation the millennials and my my son's a millennial and i really have hope that they're they're moving forward because the one thing that bothers me most is when people say i don't see color you know what you do because when you look at somebody you see their gender or the gender they identify with when you look at a red or green light you see that it's red or it's green when you look at me you see a brown woman so don't tell me you don't see color because it's okay to have difference i think sometimes we're socialized to all be the same we don't have to be the same there's nothing wrong with people being different, but it's how we value people. And that's where it goes back to why I formed the task force, why we did the Awareness Day, because not everyone's valued the same in our country. And it's come, it's the light being shined on us. And you see this with COVID-19. You look at the hotspots even in Utah, and the people being impacted by it the most are our Navajo Nation, but also our Latino community here in Utah. I live in Glendale. We are, like, probably the reddest of red and so, you know, these are inequalities that we have to look at. Why is this happening? Why don't people have access to health care? Why aren't people getting paid a living wage? And we have to reflect on ourselves and think about how do we benefit off of that? And these are tough questions, and it's not going to be solved overnight. And so I always want to remind people, I've had a lot of young people call me, and they're like, well, what are we going to do? I'm like, these are going to be changes, and they're, gonna take, they're not going to happen overnight. And I don't want to lie to you and say they're going to happen overnight, but these are the things we can do short-term, but these are the things that we need to do long-term, and and it's probably going to be past my own lifetime. So I, I really think that we need to start having these honest conversations, like Yolanda pointed out, and they're going to be uncomfortable, and that's okay, and it's okay to be uncomfortable. I know we uh, have to let to both of you go here pretty soon. Um, so Yolanda, Francisco Nez, uh, any last words on this that you'd like to, to say? Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Representative Romero for and Senator Hinkins for forming this task force and being able to move forward. Uh, we look forward to the to the first task force meeting that occurs and look forward to helping inform further policy in the coming years on providing equity for our Indigenous communities. Tom, I do want to go back to, circle back to why we're on this call today, really to think, to look at the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit populations and how Utah is faring. I want to mention that Utah, we can do better. We can certainly do better. Every single time as an Indigenous woman, I avoid downtown Salt Lake City as much as possible because I consider myself and my daughters and granddaughters targets for society to we are targets. We are at high risk of going missing or mur- murdered. And my hope is that about uh, my hope is that as we go forward with this, that as the task force does this work, that we will begin to look at and consider what is happening in law enforcement and how is how are the systems within law enforcement negatively affecting. the tracking of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and Two-Spirit. Also, to take a look at potentially um, the lack of safety for Native women, particularly uh, 
in Indian country, uh, when we have eight tribes here in the state of Utah federally recognized who cannot prosecute perpetrators who are non-native, we have a if we have an incident that occurs that is a felony, we have to call the FBI, and most of those cases are not being prosecuted. And we, we need our tribes to have, be able to have the funding that allows them to have tribal law officers and also to have a court, viable court system and also to have a uh, jail system that can house perpetrators. We have a, in our own Navajo community down in southern Utah, there isn't even a police department. There is no fire department. There is no local. Um, you can when you call nine one one, you may or may not have law enforcement respond uh, until it takes. To, it's a two and a half hour drive to the nearest law enforcement from Anis, Utah, in Shiprock, New Mexico. And when you have a someone who's been victimized um, or sexually assaulted, and you have police officers who are two hours away and they don't show up or they don't call until the next day. And meanwhile, the community's taking it into their own hands or the father may have taken it into his own hands and ends up going to jail as well. But what I'm saying is I just really hope that we have uh, an opportunity to discuss with the task force what real-life situations look like for for missing and murdered Indigenous women and their families who are the survivors. Well, very good. We'll, we'll leave there for, with uh, this part of the program. Yolanda Francisco-Nez with Restoring Ancestral Winds has joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Representative Angela Romero, thanks for joining us. Um, thank you. And I, I, I want to give a shout-out to Yolanda and Moroni again from Restoring Ancestral Winds. They brought this issue to me. And um, I, I, pro- I made a promise to them, and I'm glad they were there to be, be by my side and make sure it happened. So thank you. And uh, by the way, we'll have a list of resources on our website, upr.org, following this program. Um, so we'll take a quick break, come back with a, a very quick uh, final segment with our reporter, Tamsin Malloy. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Join us here on Utah Public Radio throughout the week for Utah State University Extension's Ask an Expert. Featuring timely information from raising your own backyard chickens to keeping our waterways clean and tips promoting mental wellness at work. If you've missed the latest segment for the week, you can find all the Ask an Expert features on our website, upr.org, and on our UPR app. This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. We're talking about uh, miss, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls on the program uh, today. This episode is also part of UPR's Project Resilience, made possible with support from the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities and the Family Place in Logan. And uh, UPR reporter uh, Tamsin Malloy has uh, stayed with us uh, for the hour. Uh, anything top of mind uh, based on that discussion for the for the past hour? You've you've uh, done a deep dive into this subject, and and now uh, we're, have been with us for this hour. Um, I think one of the things that comes to mind is um, what Yolanda was touching on at the end um, when she was talking about uh, how there aren't very many police precincts on um, reservations, and if they are, they're really far away, and um, and how uh, indigenous groups don't have the power to prosecute non-native offenders, um, which puts this which puts it in this weird limbo, whereas they themselves can't prosecute it, but the FBI isn't necessarily prosecuting it, and the local, there isn't really a local police presence to conduct those investigations. And um, I, I think it kind of drums down this whole situation where we have this historical problem, and it, it's not new. It's been happening for a long time, 
um, but the resources to deal with it in kind of an investigative and legal way aren't necessarily there either. So it's, it's like Yolanda said, putting a lot of people in a situation where they take it into their own hands, which can kind of help perpetuate um, some of the problems communities are seeing. And, and it's just like this overall big, like they're nitty-gritty details that kind of filter into this, this issue as a whole. Um, I want to just have a, a couple of minutes. I want to mention resources, um, and we'll have that on our website. You uh, you list a bunch of resources uh, on your story, right? So you can go to upr.org, look at Tamsin's story. Um, there are resources to, to help in, in Native communities. Yes. Yeah, the the number one that um, uh, the people I talked to for my story uh, mentioned first off was a hotline. Um, for It's the Strong Hearts Helpline. And the number is one eight four four seven native for um, anyone who needs to utilize that hotline, and it's affiliated with uh, the website strongheartshelpline.org. Um, and people can call there if they're experiencing dating or domestic violence, and they can have uh, they can talk to people who know what they're going through. So these are this is a helpline designated for indigenous people and their indigenous people on the helpline who can respond so it'll be culturally appropriate um, instead of having to deal with on top of your immediate crisis um, a, a white person who doesn't understand your culture trying to put something else on there that you don't want to have want, don't want to have to deal with in that moment yeah, there are a bunch of resources, so you go to upr.org, upr.org, to, to find those resources. Uh, and Tamsa, I, I noticed on Restoring Ancestral Winds website, one of the top things here, to, just to bring this home, um, you know, the, the, everything has a backdrop of COVID-19, and uh, on that website they're talking about COVID-19 and domestic violence. You know, they say if you're co-quarantined with an abuser or worried about having to self-isolate from COVID-19 in a dangerous home situation, you're not alone. And then they link over to this uh, Strong Hearts helpline. Uh, mm-hmm. just, just an illustration, I guess. <laughs> COVID-19 yeah. is coloring everything. Uh, well, we reached the end of our time. Uh, Tamsin Malloy, you can find her story, very fine story, on our website, upr.org, and she's uh, joined us for the program today. Tamsin, thanks for your great work. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for uh, joining us today for Access Utah. As part of Project Resilience, Utah Public Radio and the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities presents the Mental Health and Developmental Disability National Training Center's Crossroads podcast. In Episode 8, Improving Access to Mental Health Services for Young Adults with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and Mental Health Needs. Find this and other episodes by going to our website, upr.org, and linking to our Project Resilience programming. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org. My name is Helen Cannon and I garden in Cache Valley. Utah Public Radio is very important to me. It has been for much of my life. It's vital to my happiness.